0: This show is brought to you by The Makery,
1: the podcast network for makers.
2: Welcome to Knife Talk, the podcast for anybody interested in knives, whether you're a maker, a hobbyist, collector, whatever you may be. or You just like listen to three middle-aged men. Hello.
3: Welcome to Knife Talk. This is crazy, isn't it? Jesus, what am I doing? Anyway. (sighs) all right. I guess I better go back to the beginning and tell you about how I've become the one-time host of Knife Talk Podcast. It started when I was asleep, in a dream, and when I woke up, I got in touch with Jeff Fader, Fader Knives, on Instagram. And I left him a voicemail. And this is that voicemail. Ring, ring. Hello, Jeff Fader. Hello. I had this mad dream last night, right? Where I did a Knife Talk International Women's Day takeover. And you were all sacked for the day. And I interview all the mega women who are making knives at the moment. And... Then I was like, maybe that should be real. What do you think? And then I left another voicemail. Listening back to my message now, to be honest, I'm thinking, do you know the way some people have a face for radio? Maybe I've got a voice for television, but we can make it work. And that's it. Now, I'm the one-time host of Knife Talk Podcast. But look, don't worry, Craig, Jeff, and Marekka are going to be back next week, and it's not just me here today anyway, so you don't need to worry about that. What started out as an actual dream has become the perfect excuse for me to chat to some makers whose work or approach I really admire. My name is Holly Loftus of Loftus Knives, and in this episode we're celebrating International Women's Day. All my guests today are incredibly talented knife makers, and all of us in this episode make very different work. You're going to hear from Vanessa Martin, who is forging all her knives but rarely using a hand hammer. From Grace Horn, who is primarily a stock removalist and can often be found dissecting bars of Damascus with a copper wire. Andrea De Leon, whose varied background as a machinist, glassblower and jeweller, has allowed her to experiment and collaborate wildly. Elion LeBlanc, who made violins for many years before working a piece of steel into a highly finished chef knife. And Delana, whose work is always within the confines of a lockback folding knife, but makes some of the most stunning functional art you can find. All of those who I spoke to have different paths into it, and I wanted to emphasise that in the show, so that if you're listening and thinking about getting into knife making but don't know how, maybe these conversations will give you a few ideas. There are some parts of the conversations that go into specifics about knife making, and I didn't quite manage to explain the terms. So if this episode leaves you with questions, send them over to Knife Talk Podcast on Instagram and they might answer it in next week's show. I also need to say a quick apology to Olivia of Wildcraft Knives and Haley Pope of Fever Dream Forge. My computer almost R.I.P. bit the dust when I was making this show and the audio of their interviews just couldn't be saved. Please help me make it up to them by following them on Instagram and then heading over to their shops and buying all their available work. I really need you to help me kiss butt and get back in their good books because it is really sad that their interviews aren't a part of this show today. I also need to ask you to forgive me for the very varied audio throughout the interviews. I am a podcasting novice. I am a knife maker. This was very hard for me to figure out how to do, but... I did my best and I hope that you'll still enjoy it. Last thing I'll say now is thank you so much to Knife Talk Podcast for hosting this. Thank you to all the knife makers who made the time to chat to me today. And thank you to all you listeners for being part of the knife making community. Happy International Women's Day. And don't forget, today is a great day to buy a woman a power hammer. I'm really excited to chat to Vanessa Martin now. I've really admired her work for a long time. There's probably easier ways to get into knife making than the way Vanessa did it. She packed up her whole life and moved to Alaska to train under Master Smiths, Haley and Adam DeRozier. Since then, she's settled down in Alaska. She's working part-time fisherman, part-time knife maker. She's making beautiful integral knives. If you don't know what they are, they are... The knives where the blade and the bolster is made out of one piece of steel. Go and take a look at her Instagram. She's over there at Vanessa Knives. Vanessa, I was hoping you could kick us off by just telling us what's the biggest fish you've ever caught.
4: Oh, Uh about
5: 111 pounds. That's <laughs> crazy. Hal- <laughs> it was a halibut. <laughs> it was pretty big. It was very fun. I... And, uh, yeah, I, I love fishing. I'm crazy about fishing. And that's not just commercial fishing. That was, uh, that was sport fishing. So it was a halibut and <laughs> it's really fun. I, if you ever get the opportunity to go halibut fishing, I would recommend it. You get quite the adrenaline rush reeling in one of them big guys and and they taste pretty good too, if I do say so myself.
3: You know, I went, um, fishing for the first time this summer. And got like a few tiny mackerel, Uh and it was so thrilling to me that I think if I went halibut fishing, I'd probably have a heart attack and die or something (laughs) because I was screaming (laughs) my head off, so pleased to have caught so many mackerel. You know, it was yeah amazing, and then eating them was so cool. I
5: still get so excited. I start hooting and hollering, and I just get so excited, and I have a dog and she she's normally always with me and she gets really excited and starts barking and talking it's a great time i would recommend fishing to everybody amazing if you have to pick one knife making or fishing i don't know fishing's hard to beat
3: (laughs) thankfully i don't have to pick. yeah so funny (laughs) and what about do you have any like uh special tricks for keeping your hands in good nick, in good condition, like between fishing and knifing? Oh, I don't know about that.
5: I think my hands <laughs> get pretty abused. I tr- really try to keep them off the grinder, but every now and then I accidentally touch it. I take it off really fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Fishing, uh, I wear gloves all day long like, kind of latex gloves, and so my hands look really nice when I'm fishing, and then I go to making knives, and I don't know, they just, they look so dirty and
3: bad all the time when I'm making (laughs) knives. That's Uh, so funny. So they're kind of, um, are they, like, super sensitive from being in the gloves, then, for, like, six months? Kinda. They're sort of soft like yeah they're when I'm like making their... them for six months and then
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean they're used like in the gloves so but it's hard to get a callus and stuff because that's kind of your gloves get damp and stuff and you're like always changing them and trying to make them dry but Haley really likes to rub um like lime a cut a lime in quarters and like rub it; it like kind of bleaches your hands to the, your normal color again, <laughs> gets all the dirt and stuff out. That works so, pretty well.
3: What like the fruit?
5: Yeah, a lime. Oh my god! But well, when
3: you get that in your cut, it's horrible.
5: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it depends on how much you want your hands
3: to look good. <laughs> if you're willing to commit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but
5: I think I've gotten a lot better at not cutting myself I don't know just being more aware of where my fingers are when I'm hand sanding and stuff but I guess I don't really have anything too intelligent about that part <laughs> <laughs> other than don't put them on the grinder if you can help it
3: <laughs> that's good enough advice I'd say I was wondering if um could you just <laughs> tell us about how you got started making knives
5: well I've been friends with Haley and her family before her and Adam were, uh, got together and my, my dad and grand, grandfather are contractors. And so they built Haley's mom and dad's house. And so when I was five, they went up to Alaska and was building the house where my parents were and my grandpa. And so I got to know Haley a little bit and she was just kind of getting started making knives and, Anyway, I thought that was pretty cool, and the more, the, as I got older, I just thought that was really cool, so I started making knives on my own a little bit, and I just had a file and an angle grinder, and I was making them out of bandsaw blades from the mill, and using, I think my first handle had a 2 by 4 that's what I used <laughs> for wood, <laughs> and uh I grew up farming and stuff, so I had some access to a few tools around, but man, I would never show that <laughs> knife to anybody. <laughs> but and then when I was sixteen, Haley and Adam uh they started building their shop, their knife making shop. Um and so I got a hold of them and I said, Hey, if I come up and help you on your shop, would you give me would you teach me some knife making? And they said, Sure. So I saved up my money and bought a plane ticket and went up and insulated their shop which i don't know if you've ever insulated but it's oh, not no. very fun <laughs> and then <laughs> uh and then they traded me knife making and i made four knives forged and everything and that was the first time i had really forged much and i think i spent a total of 6 weeks with them and then i went home and and I got a grinder eventually. It took me a while to save up for one and kind of started making them on my own, but it was hard. I was getting quench cracks and I could hardly make it. <laughs> like, obviously, I was young and still in school and stuff, but it was pretty brutal doing <laughs> it on my own. It's like with all Haley and Adam's tools, it was easy, but without all those tools, it's super hard. I tried building my own forge and that was a disaster. The flames would go up like five feet in the air because it wasn't getting enough (laughs) air. And And then I got a coal forge and I'd have my sister hand crank it for me to try to get it hot enough to be able to forge. But anyway,
3: it was was a really fun adventure. And And was your sister just there for hours, like cranking away while you were trying to forge? Uh (laughs) Oh,
5: Um, she's eight years younger than me, so maybe not hours, but maybe like an (laughs) hour or something. And she thought it was fun. So there's that. And then, um, I had to get a regular job (laughs) for a while and I did auto glass and I decided, you know, I don't think I really love working eight to five too very much. I think I, I want to try to make a go of it making knives. So. And Haley and Adam's shop had burned down, unfortunately, that year, and so I got a hold of them when they were building again, and I said, hey, I'm looking to come up to Alaska and maybe go fishing in the summers, and I um, was wondering what you guys would think about an apprenticeship, and they said, sure, come on up, you can help us on the shop, and when you start making knives, we can, you know, figure that out, and... So I was like, okay, and I gave my notice at work, and six weeks later I went to Alaska, oh and I haven't gosh. left. How long ago was that? Uh, that was in the fall of 2016. Wow, so good. <laughs> so, and then I, I lived out there. I had my own house, and then i just go to work every day at Haley and Adams and learned so much and just had so much fun learning and they were both in there and like 100% so they didn't have kids or anything at the time and so it was it was pretty fun getting to work with them and learn from them and they make such similar knives but they also like kind of make knives different than each other so getting to learn one way and getting to learn another way and then trying to figure out what worked best for me and having access to the tools it was just amazing and so valuable. And I know so many people don't get the opportunity to do, do what I did. And so I'm just so grateful for that and grateful that Haley and Adam took me on. And and now I I mean, I could make knives full time and make a go of it, but fishing is in my blood and I love it. so.
3: And it was just after you went to Alaska that you started doing the fishing then
5: i had fished a little bit when i was 14 um when my dad was doing some remote construction and so i kind of knew that i liked it and so but i didn't really know very many people in the fishing community so Haley and adam had some friends that had what's called a tender and what they are is they're pretty much just a trucker on the water. They go out to the fishermen, <laughs> and they get the fish, and then they bring the fish back to the plant to be processed. Yeah. So that's where I started.
3: You were the yeah, trucker? Yeah, as a
5: trucker. And uh, I called those people so many times, and finally they were like, okay, we'll give you a job if you stop calling us. I'm like, great. So then I, I had to go to another town for that, and I think I was on their boat for— like 100 days, and, and then back to knife making after that. And then during that time, I met, uh, who's now my husband. He was on one of the fishing boats, and and now I'm
3: married to him,
5: and he has his own fishing boat, and we fish together.
3: <laughs> so you have a workshop at home now, but you still go to Haley and Adams to do your forging. Yeah, um... I we didn't we don't have property in
5: town so I rent a shop from somebody and getting tools up to Alaska they have to come up on a barge or they have to be on an airplane. So getting a power hammer I just decided that I wanted to wait until I have a piece of property and a shop to put it in cuz moving those things around isn't necessarily fun. <laughs> oh, God yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a forge and an anvil and you know, I have pretty much all of the tools I need just slowly saved up and bottom over the years. But for the power hammer and the press, I'm just kind of waiting. Hopefully in the next couple of years, I'll get a shop and, and a power hammer and be able to make my own Damascus and stuff. But for now, Haley and Adam just let me use their tools. But I do have to take my skiff over to their property and you know, spend a couple days over there. It's not like a pop-in for a couple hours and forge. So I just got done forging like 26 knives or something. I I guess you could say I'm a little bit tired of forging. I never thought I would <laughs> oh get there, but <laughs> give me something to work on for the winter.
3: And why you're doing a kind of big batch because you can only go there for, that it's like a big ordeal to get there. So you try and just get a big chunk done to take back with you, is it?
5: Yeah, kind of. It It's probably only like a half an hour boat ride, but you have to plan the weather and make sure that you're not going to get into trouble going across. It's pretty fun. I really enjoy getting to work with Haley and Adam. They're so talented and I'm definitely humbled when I watch them work. Like, wow, someday I might be able to be that smooth on the power hammer.
3: <laughs> You're making amazing work of your own. Thank you. All I... of your knives pretty much are integrals, right?
5: <clears throat> yeah, pretty much. I I really enjoy making integrals. Um, I just really like the idea that they have to be forged. So it's like that. That knife, you know, you could do a stock removal knife, and it doesn't have to be forged. But the integral, you can see the forge, especially with Damascus. When you're p- pounding that steel, bringing that choil down, it's just, it's just really cool to me, and I really like that idea. I was looking at your knives a bit, and looks like you leave some, all oh, quite a bit of forged texture on. I think that's really cool. I, Really enjoyed seeing that Thanks on so your much, knives.
3: yeah, I guess I feel the same though it's kind of cool to see the making of it a bit in the in the finished pieces, you know, yeah, um I don't know, yeah, I just think it's weird when um people don't do that at all, you know, but I guess maybe they think it's cool that you can't see the work that's gone into it, <laughs> yeah, I
5: really like uh you know, I've done a few brute forge or whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, and I really like doing those. Those are pretty fun. But I also, on my chef knives, I like it to be clean, really clean and uh, not leaving the brute to forge, per- just yeah, personally. Yeah. Um, so with the integral, it's like, well, that had to be forged, even though you can't see the forged texture. Uh, I guess that's one of the main reasons I like to make integrals. But, and it's, not everyone in the whole world's doing it yet, so that's kind of cool, too, I think. <laughs> There's a lot of people, but...
3: Do you think that, um, has your work changed? Like, when you were getting started, do you, do you kind of have an idea of the knives that you wanted to make?
5: Um, yeah, I I guess i I do. I have more of an eye for lines, I guess you could say, than when I first started. When I first started, my handles seemed really straight and, like not super curvy and, and I like to use knives a lot too. I, I am a pretty, pretty avid hunter. I hunt deer and, um, and so I'm using my hunting knives. And so I kind of know what I like for a hunting knife. Um, and then I, I, uh, I didn't really think I would ever be a chef knife maker, but I made one for a friend for her wedding and, I hated that knife. It was horrible. (laughs) They take forever to grind. They're so hard to keep straight when you heat treat them. And oh my goodness, it was, I was said, oh, there's no way you're going to be able to make money at this, Vanessa. So, but then I gave it another go. And now I, I enjoy it. They're a little bit challenging sometimes because they're you know, long, and I like to try to make them skinny, and and hand sanding them takes forever, but I just love the idea that they're being used daily, and a hunting knife, they're really fun to make, but the reality is they're probably only going to get used, like, a couple times a year, you know, maybe there's a few guys who are going to carry them every day, but Uh, probably not, but they're just, so the chef knife is, like, out being shown to your friends and stuff, and they're being used, so I just, I love the idea of a knife being used, I guess, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to make knives, is I want a knife that is going to cut well, and is sharp, and is going to perform in the way that, um, that it's intended to, and I'm not as into the artsy knives, I guess, as I am into a useful knife. Yeah, totally.
3: So what's, what's your kind of process? Like, do you do a lot of, like, hand forging?
5: Um, I would say I probably use the power hammer more. I, I do do some hand forging with a hammer just to kind of keep a little bit of shape, but I've learned how to use the power hammer in a way that I could probably just use the power hammer and not use a hand hammer at all if I didn't want to. And then they have a hydraulic press, so sometimes I will put it in there and straighten the knife out at the end before I let it cool. But, yeah, definitely more with the power hammer, I guess.
3: I'm really, really bad
1: at using them.
3: (laughs) Well, practice makes pretty good, so... (laughs) So, are you going to focus on, like, chef's knives now for... Or is that you just made 26 or most of them chef's knives? Um, I think I
5: made 11 chef knives and the rest are hunters and everyday carries. I guess I get kind of tired of just making one style of knife. So, I like to switch it up and I guess one of them is a chopper that I made and kind of just whatever it feel like at the time. I don't really draw my knives or anything normally. I just kind of do it by eye and like hold it up and look at it and stuff and like you don't have any kind of design or a plan going in. Um no, not well. I either know if I'm going to forge a chef knife or a hunter when I start, but yeah, I don't I don't I used to draw it out and stuff cuz I didn't really know how to look for the shape but now i just kind of like envision this knife and and i can just make it come out on the power hammer how i want it to which is really nice a lot of people draw spend so much time drawing their knife and how exactly they want it to look and and Haley really encouraged that so i tried it for a while but i Adam he doesn't really do that at all i've never really ever seen him draw a knife and I think I make knives a little bit more like him, I guess. Just just kind of hold it up and look at the profile of it and see what you like and what you don't like and kind of go from there. It's really fun that way, I think.
3: Do you think if you had um, an apprentice that you would kind of encourage them to be doing drawings as well, though, even though it's not really what you were into?
5: Yeah, yeah, it, I think it's good especially when you're beginning to make knives and you don't really know exactly what you're looking for or you know to look at somebody else's design a little bit and be like wow I really like that knife I'm going to strive for that one and so then you kind of draw your design and you know your handle and everything in the beginning and yeah I mean I know lots of knife makers who hit you know they might be master smiths and they draw their knives out and make it exactly like they're drawing and everything which is it's really awesome there's definitely a time to draw (laughs) but I feel like my draw I'm not the greatest artist when it comes to drawing either so I guess that might be part of it Jason Knight once showed me something that was pretty cool he just started drawing these lines like kind of looked like scribbling sort of he's just like drawing the blade. I mean, it was somewhat sort of a blade shape and then kind of like wiggling it around sort of. And then he had all of these lines, tons and tons of lines. And then he looked at the lines and he like made, uh, traced the lines that he liked and, and drew the knife out. And I thought that was really cool. It's like, you don't really have to be the greatest artist or you just kind of like look at it and and pick the lines that look pleasing to your eye, and then go with that. Yeah, that's nice.
3: And I heard, um, yeah, was... a interview with you know Prince Works Forge uh-huh. um, recently, and he was talking about trying to draw knives when he was first starting out, and how he'd do a drawing, and um, that it just wouldn't really look like a knife. And he was saying about like how you know think that drawing a knife would be easy because we see so many of them in our like day-to-day life, you know, everyone's got one at home and he was saying about like trying to draw a bicycle as well, like everyone knows what a bike looks like, but if you go to draw it, like have you ever tried to draw a bike? (laughs) No, I don't really draw much. (laughs) But even if you're just doing like a line drawing of a bicycle, you know, like the same with like a chef knife that sometimes it's just just looks crap, you know.
5: Yeah, <laughs> you it's true. Try and draw
3: a bike after this call <laughs> and send it to me. <laughs> I mean,
5: okay, I'll try it. Are you pretty sure you won't be impressed
3: though? <laughs> Don't spend long on it. I just want to see if um, <laughs> you know, especially now that you have all these kind of drawing skills developed in your mind. You know, you can visualize the end and be able to just make it. So maybe. You can do that with a bike and it'll just work. I I doubt it. I think
5: it would be easier for me to build a bike than I would to draw a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a welder and I could probably make one better than I could draw one. Drawing is not is not one of my talents for sure. <laughs>
3: but yeah. So you're not from Alaska. No, I'm from Washington. It's pretty cool that you just um Got it in your head that you wanted to go there,
5: yeah, yeah, I just really loved it. it was I love being on the water, I love uh the trees and the mountains and the weather i I'm a farm girl from Washington, I grew up growing oats and barley and wheat and combining and stuff, and i I hated the heat, it was horrible, it was way too hot and Pretty much if you were not swimming in the river, it was too hot in the summer. I mean, we had four seasons there. Fall and spring were great. Winter was fine. It was kind of long. But, yeah, I just, I knew I didn't want to stay there. (laughs) It was kind of a small hick town, too. If you weren't farming or logging, you had to work at the grocery store or something. (laughs) Yeah. Or I guess I could have made knives there, but I wouldn't have had the opportunity that I had here. So, and I guess I I wasn't related to anyone. Now I'm married and I have a husband and a brother-in-law in in Alaska now, but that's all I'm related to that I know of.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And do you plan to keep doing the kind of fishing knifing back to back
5: yeah i think it will probably be pretty seasonal for as far out as i can see i'm hoping to go for my journeyman smith um hopefully not in the too far future it's kind of hard for blade show for me because june is fishing season for us and so it's hard to go to blade show and yeah do the testing and stuff there and But I'd eventually like to get my master's in knife making and uh, just kind of see where it takes me. I I really enjoy making knives. I can't wait to get back to it after fishing season. And then by the time fishing season comes back around, I can't, or, you know, making knives throughout the winter, I can't wait to go fishing again. So it's just, it's really nice. Really nice. (laughs) Not nice. (laughs) And I'm really blessed to be able to make a living doing what I love. And um, and
3: so I'm, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it sounds great.
5: Yeah, too. I, it's kind of crazy that, I mean, I sell knives. They're pretty expensive. But I'm thankful that people buy them because tools are expensive, especially getting them up here. I mean... Just them on
3: the barge gets really expensive. Yeah, that's so jokes. It must be so funny. Are you able to, like, go on the barge with it? No.
5: No way. <laughs> You're not allowed. Oh, that's so funny. You have to just buy it. And just wait. Buy it a pass. Yeah, and then it takes, like, a week to get up here. Yeah, uh, I just ordered a heat-treating oven, and I'm really excited about uh, from Even Heat. But... Man, it's taking forever. It's like eight to ten weeks, and that's just getting shipped to AML. And then AML is that's the barge. It's going to be another week or two before I get it from there. So thankfully, I can do my heat treating at Haline Adams, but if I have to, or
3: out of the forge. But gosh, that's a very fortunate coincidence for me that Vanessa's getting an even heat, so I can insert this seamless ad. Because at the moment, Soul Ceramics are doing a great deal where Knife Talk listeners can get $75 off any Even Heat kiln and free delivery. If you go over to the show notes page of Knife Talk for this episode, there'll be a link there. If you follow that, it'll apply all the discounts and you get your Even Heat kiln on the way to you. If you buy it. You have to buy it, but you get $75 off. And free, free delivery. What was the other thing I was thinking to ask you before you go? Oh yeah, do you have any like what kind of tips would you have for someone who wanted to get into knife making?
5: Oh gosh.
3: Well, probably just
5: don't let your first knife be what determines y- your future knife making for sure, right? I mean, I I never really thought that I would be a knife maker from the knives that I made full time or do it for money or anything really. So, you know, just and be willing to learn and listen to anyone. And I mean, I've learned things from knife from knife makers who are just getting started. There's, you can learn something from anyone. So, never be too prideful to learn from someone or anyone. And uh, I don't know. Just, <laughs> just keep. Keep going and keep your fingers off the grinder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a hard one, (laughs) sort of.
3: Okay, don't be annoyed, but I got to cut it off there, guys. Please go and check out Vanessa's work. She is over on Instagram at Vanessa Knives. That's the best way to get in touch with her if you want to order a knife. Vanessa is a legend and maybe someday I'll get to put the full interview online, but now I gotta keep this show moving. Eliane, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Um I've been following your work for a while. You're making gorgeous chefs knives. Um I was hoping that you could kick this off just by giving us a little introduction to yourself before I start grilling you on your work.
6: Okay, uh so my name is Eliane Leblanc. I am a full-time violin maker and restorer and part-time bladesmith. I'm based in Boston, Massachusetts, and I've been making knives for about about five years at this point, I think. Small production. Unfortunately, I don't have as much time at the end as I'd like, but I'm working on it.
3: Could you tell us a bit about the knives that you are making at the moment in
6: general yeah sure so uh, I like to keep things pretty simple in in the knives I make um I think if you look at my knives it's, it's you know I'm really not reinventing knife design at all that's that's pretty obvious to keep yeah keep the main things simple the lines simple I like stiff lines with few breaks Simple materials too, you know, like one one spacer, one bolster, and I like to work in the details a lot to take those simple things and make the most of it. That that's really what I like doing.
3: And you're making all the, you're kind of doing every part of the knife
6: yourself. Oh yeah, yeah, I make my own steel, and yeah, I, I'm yeah, sole authorship for for everything.
3: When I first heard about your work, it was through Knife Talk. And it was Marekko gave you a shout out in the community showcase that you do or that they do. I remember I was really shocked, I think, because I'm always kind of keeping an eye out for women coming into knife making. I guess it's just something that's really exciting to me because I feel like knife making is so kind of male dominated. And I remember going to check out your work and thinking that you must have been around for years because... Even though I can see from like your Instagram, you say you're a part-time knife maker, but your work has a real kind of full-time aesthetic or like, it's so beautiful and well-finished <laughs> that, um, well, thank you. <laughs> that's that's that's, <laughs> that's that's nice to hear. Um, it's inspiring to see that it's possible to make such beautiful work, even when you can't devote all your time to it. But then I was thinking maybe with you, it's only possible to make that kind of exceptional work in a part-time craft because you're already a master craftsperson
6: um I think it's it's definitely so my my uh you know if we're talking about my my day job it's it's a craft I'm already a craftsperson you know using tools all day and working with materials. so I think there's definitely a lot of skills that that I take you know from one to the other and that gives me you know, a huge leg up. Um, it's not like I—I I was an accountant for 20 years and and started um, making knives. You know, uh, I mean, nothing wrong with accountants, love them. Uh, but, <laughs> even, but you know, like I'm—I'm, I'm, yeah, I—I'm I, already, you know, um, yeah, I, I'm already working with with very similar constraints, you know, with violin making than than you have with knife making. You you work with with lines, proportions, design, and you work with the properties of your material and, you know, the process of, 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 making something, uh, is, is not all that different from one craft to the other. If you acquired some things, uh, in, in, in making processes, you can easily take them from, from one craft to the other, I think.
3: What kind of things do you feel like you've taken over from violin making into your knife making? Well, I know I saw your clamping techniques on your like, Instagram. <laughs> it looks like an instrument.
6: Yeah, related. carpenters. It's carpenters clams, so it's it's what I have ar- around. Um, like beyond the tools, I I'm already looking at lines all day, lines and curves and transitions. It's it's all of island is so it's what I work with um, already all day long. So I think I I have a little bit of of um, experience there. Um, and I mean, like I said, there there's not you know doing good work. There's no secret to it in any craft like if you're used to planning out your work to you know working diligently in your process like completing one step completely before moving to the next and and being careful with your accuracy there, there are things that you know it doesn't really matter what it is you're making they're basic things that apply to everything that are going to lead you to do better quality work if you if you already have them as a habit yeah, I, I I constantly have people talking to me about how how radically different. Like, oh wow, you make violins and you make knives, and they like they're like, wow, that's so so opposite. And I, I really under it's it's really not. Like I said, you're working with the material, with volumes, with lines. It's it I see a lot more a lot more similarities between the two than than differences. So,
3: but did you have an interest in knives like before you started making them?
6: I had an interest in cutting tools. Um that, that's how I, I got to it in the first place. Um, you know, like many, many of my woodworker colleagues, uh I, I have a bit of a problem with tools. <laughs> I you know, I have you know, my workshop is <laughs> is loaded with, with six iterations of every single tool I own in an antique version and modern and with and you know, I I I like tools. Um and we 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 have to make a lot of our own tools too, and that's how I was brought to it. Because you know, if you make a custom plane for yourself, I would have to um, outsource, you know, find the plate, the blade, the the actual cutting blade of the tool somewhere else. And I was looking, you know, it would be great if I had the you know the knowledge to to you know do and he treat the blade too. And that's how I stumbled upon the New England of metalwork school website that that's how I I stumbled upon it. And I was like, wow, like that's within driving distance from, from where I live. I'm, you know, I'm in Boston, so it's, it's a three hour drive. And I was looking at their, their course offerings. And um, I was like, they, there was a Damascus making class on there. And I was like, can I seriously like enroll for like, and and they listed it as a beginner's class. And I remember I even like I, I, I emailed them asking, you know, before signing up on the website, saying, "Look, I see that you you list this as a beginner's class, but how how beginner can you be?" Because I'm like, I'm beginner, <laughs> like never never touched metal before. And they replied, "Yeah, no, it's a beginner. Like you don't need any prerequisite experience. You can just sign up." And I was like, "Wow!" So I, I yeah, I signed up, and and you know, uh, sure enough, like you show up, and that that was in a class with Nick Rossi most of them are, or were anyway. Um, and, and yeah, he just, you know, takes you by the hand and in in three days you make three billets. I think I made a, a, a raindrop, a twist and a ladder and yeah, you leave after three days and you made, you made, you know, Damascus material. It's, it's pretty awesome. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's really addictive. Like once you start you know moving metal and and creating patterns in metal like i was like hmm, I, I think i'm going to be coming back and, and doing some more <laughs> some more things here um and yeah i just started taking more classes like the next one i signed for was to make uh, a chef's knife so that that's how i started um i i would love to dabble into making other types of knives and i'm sure i'll i will at some point in the future uh, but I, I do cook a lot, and and so um, chef's knives for me, you know, make a lot of sense. Simply because I can, I can try what I make and see whether whether I think it's good or not. So, as a luthier, you've probably been in
3: loads of workshops in your lifetime. But was it intimidating going to the New England School of Metalworks? Did you feel like it was a welcoming environment?
6: Oh yeah. Um. I mean, I cannot say enough good things about about them. The facilities are great; they have all the equipment, and they are they are super welcoming. You know it's not super comfortable, like I said, I showed up there for the first time, knowing nothing, nothing about anything, and also i mean obviously too, I was the only woman in the class, which is not something I particularly care about or or care for, but still you know they they are very inclusive and super welcoming. The classes cover pretty much any topic in the craft, and they also have blacksmithing classes um, that are really interesting. I'd love to take a few more of those, but uh, time <laughs> times a problem. Um, no, it's it's really a great resource, and like I'm super lucky to be again within within driving distance from them. So I'm still still taking classes when I can. And so,
3: is that where you learn to forge your
6: knives? Oh yeah, I, I, I mean, pretty much everything I know I learned from from Nick Rossi there. Um, and you know, if you want to learn how to forge knives, Nick's Nick's the man. <laughs> he's, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, he's he's an amazing teacher. Um, I'm still harassing him with questions constantly, and he he hasn't blocked me on his phone yet, so I'm very happy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and (laughs) since then i've taken all of the culinary knife classes that they offer and a few others i've done their uh hunting knife class uh mostly because i'd like to i'd like to get my my gs stem at some point and i mean to to the knives you have to present for your journeyman smith is is that kind of construction with a guard a fitted guard and so i i wanted to get familiar with it um to to start playing with that a little bit.
3: Uh, why are you interested in going
6: for the journeyman smith? Well, honestly, it's really just personal satisfaction. I think. I really don't think that stamp helps selling your knives. That's really not um, why why I'd like to do it. Um, in violin making, it's something you have you know to do pretty regularly. Is like you know submit your work for review to your peers, and it's always good to know where you stand. So I'm a part-time maker, but I'd like to, you know, have that stamp that says that your work is on a certain level. Um, Yeah, I
3: think that's really cool. It's something that doesn't really exist in the UK or in Europe in the same way. And I think that, I think the tradition of it is really good and having, I don't know, craft needs to have standards, I think, you know, for it to be a craft and not um, just be... Ours, I guess.
6: I, yeah, I think it's great that these these you know certifications are there. I mean, they're not they're not keeping anyone from being in the trade if they don't want to do it. that's totally fine. But you yeah, know, I think I think it's it's helping um, the trade in general when there are these these kind of kinds of standards. But again, no one is forced to participate and partake into it. So for me, I just I just like it like to do it for my own satisfaction.
3: Now you have your own workshop, right? Um, what's it like there?
6: So it's um it's it, it's within a compound that's about, there's 30 or 40 artist studios and there's all sorts of people there. There's graphic designers, woodworkers, painters, stone carvers. So it's a really great environment. And on the ground floor, there's a little hole in the back that's a blacksmith shop. <laughs> uh, and uh, I heard about it through mutual friends and I was like, what, what? She was like, there's a blacksmith? She, she was like, yeah, they have blacksmith there. I was like, you're in Boston? Like, there's a blacksmith shop? And yeah, she was like, yeah, you should you should go. And yeah, you you bet I did. I went to knock <laughs> knock at their door like, hello, <laughs> how are you? Uh, and I asked them if, if, yeah, if they were looking for a shop meet and they, you know, uh, they're great people. There were two of them at the time. Um, Since then, one has retired. He was a professional bladesmith. um, Sorry, blacksmith. They're not knife makers. They're blacksmiths. Um, And so now it's me and uh, my shopmate, Andrew, who's a retired lawyer. Now he makes uh, ornamental forging. So we share the space. It's very basic, you know. There's water water leaks everywhere, and it's just brick walls with with no heating. But it's, it's great at the same time because it's in the city. And if and when we have to leave that place, I'm I'm not sure we'd ever be able to find find a place um, without being pretty far out of the city. So uh, we're we're really lucky to to have that. Yeah.
3: Were you intimidated at
6: all taking on a space on? on your own to do your knife making uh yes i mean uh yeah for sure Uh, at the same time the rent over there is very reasonable um buying the equipment was a lot more intimidating um i mean but i guess it's you know it it goes hand in hand uh with, with taking on the space um i'm very lucky to have you know a relatively successful career as a luthier so you know i'm i'm not rich by any means but i make I make a good living, so I knew that even even if I sold zero knives, I wouldn't be in trouble, so it was you know a, a pretty limited risk anyway. I was mostly just super excited about it and, and just to give it a go and see see what I can do, yeah,
3: I thought it was interesting saying what you were saying earlier about how you are kind of really familiar with lines and curves now, and I feel like you can see that in your handles um I was wondering like do you spend a lot of time on design or do you feel like there's much crossover between the way that you think about how instruments are made and the way that you think about doing your handle work sorry if this is really lame
0: question.
3: <laughs> no no
6: i i i i understand it um i don't look for that it's not something i'm trying to do at all it's also the aesthetics preference I have I mean I like to work with pretty simple lines but at the same time with subtle um subtle you know flows um
5: Hmm.
6: well I think curves curves are extremely challenging I think you know to be
3: able to to make one and have it look right it's something I really struggle with in my knife uh making so
6: yeah, absolutely. And that that's definitely something I, I have a leg up on, you know, because if you look at a violin, there's not a single straight line, not one, um, even the one that look straight are not. So it's, um, I don't know, I, I guess I'm sure there is, I'm sure that without, without trying to, I, I transfer some, some, you know, some similarities, or at least some, some ideas, but I don't. I don't have it in mind. It's not something I. I, I try to do.
3: And would you, when you're designing handles or with the whole knife, do you spend much time kind of planning a project before you begin one? Uh,
6: not not a lot, honestly. You know, when I start, I have a general idea of, of course, of the type of blade I'm making, the length. Um, I often don't decide on the handle before the blade is finished. Sure. Um, yeah. So I don't, I really don't spend much time at the drawing table. Um, I probably should, but I I kind of like having more freedom in the process. And uh, that's partly, I have to do a lot more planning uh, in the violin work that I do, particularly with the restoration work. So I I kind of enjoy not planning as much with knives, sorry, with knives and just improvising a little bit more. I I I like the freedom, so I I do I don't like I uh, even with the patterns I'll like often halfway through the process I'll decide on something else and you know if the density of layers is not quite what I expected it to end up looking like I'll just try I'll just decide to do something else with it. Um, so no, I don't I don't plan out very precisely in advance.
3: I think that's so interesting because I feel like when if you just looked at your work, especially some of your work that I've seen on eating tools, you know, if you said I spend a long time planning it and make it to spec, that that would sound like fair enough as well, you know?
6: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. It's good that it looks like that. And I mean, I'm I'm pretty rigorous, like uh, in, in, in the steps of the process, but I don't, uh, not with the design. I, 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 I kind of go with, with the flow and, Um, Make change. Do a lot of changes as I as I go on the build.
3: A lot of the women who I've spoken to have said the same, and I was really surprised. I don't know why. I think it is just looking at the kind of finished the finished product. Yeah, the standard (laughs) of people's work, and they're like, I just wing it, you know.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I think it's a part. I think it contributes to to the 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 appeal of the object at the end. First, it's really hard to stick to a pre-plan, like to, you know, if you have a really strict design, particularly if you do one-offs, like I n- never repeat so far. If I make one, I don't try to repeat it. I, I, no, I think the freedom really adds due to that appeal of the finished piece, even if... Um, yeah, totally. Beyond just like the refinement, I think, you know, taking that freedom contributes to making it look good. Mm-hmm. When you were first learning and doing classes,
3: did they encourage you to spend much time on design?
6: Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit more, yeah. And I think um, that that's that's a good thing <laughs> when you're just starting out. Um, I mean, we don't spend hours. You know, the classes are fast paced. If you're gonna make a complete, you know, a finished knife in a three or four day class, yeah, they got to keep you moving. They, yeah, they they you know they don't make you spend an entire afternoon designing your handle you know you do you do yeah you draw a profile on on the on sheet of paper and does that look good yes let, let's go um they no they do but again the 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 pace of the class doesn't allow to de to dive too deep into it yeah
3: do you think um that you would <laughs> this is something that came up when i was talking to vanessa which is do you think that you'd be able to draw a bicycle just from your mind
6: draw a bicycle (laughs) yeah um you mean like reinventing like draw something new or just no just just a
3: standard push bike do you think that you'd be able to do like a stick drawing basically of bicycle
6: and it would roughly i'm 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 i can't design i can't draw anything I really, I'm I'm impaired with a pen. Really, you know, one, yeah. Once, uh, once I switch to a material, yeah, I can, you know, I I can do decent sculpting, like I can sculpt a face with decent resemblance, things like that. But pen, pen and paper and lines, I'm I'm impaired. I'm absolutely uh, incapable of drawing anything. So I find that yeah. so interesting
3: because yeah. you know Vanessa was saying she would have. An easier time building a bike than drawing one.
6: <laughs> oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I, I identify with that a thousand percent. Pretty sure I <laughs> would build a decent bike, but yeah, um, no pen, pen, pen and paper. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know. There's, there's a blockage there. It, it's just never been something I can do. So I, I usually skip it if I can.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think that I assumed because you know, you're this kind of exceptional luthier, that you would have these design skills or that that would be a part of becoming um, a luthier, you know? Mm-hmm. In my head, where I have no idea about luthier, I was like, obviously the first thing they must do is learn to draw
4: <laughs>
6: stringed instruments. Well, no, the, the great thing is, well, first, um, I don't know that I'm an exceptional luthier, but that's... um it's the same thing. You don't have to be able to draw it on paper to be able to do it amazingly in the material. You don't, you, it's, you don't need that. Great if you have it. Like I have some some colleagues who are amazing artists. And um, I'm sure that, that definitely gives them some advantages in some parts of the work. But it's not necessary at all. Um, you know, in the end, it, it happens in, in, the, in materials, not not on the paper and with a pen, so um, yeah, I'm living proof that you can you can make it anyway. <laughs> Are you interested? Like,
3: do you look to kind of French or German knives for inspiration, or?
6: Well, one one of the makers I, whose work I I really like is uh, Janis Scholz. Um, on Instagram, I, I have no idea how to pronounce it. He's a uh, Surzies knives. Um I I think he's one of my favorite makers out there. Um I really like what he's doing. Uh he's in Germany, so in terms, you know, if you know if you're talking about contemporary work that that's definitely an influence. Were you meaning more like the Sabatier, the French ones or you know, do you mean in terms of models or in terms of contemporary makers? I guess yeah, just in terms of just kind of profile influence, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, personally, well, I, I like a French profile. I like pretty pointy, pointy ends and flat, uh, flat cutting edges. I mean, relatively flat. Um, so that's often what I, what I do. Um, even though, you know, it's such personal tastes, um, what preferences people have in the kitchen for, um, those things. Um, I'm not, uh, I generally am not a fan of German profiles. Um, again, I would have no problem making one if if people ask, but it's not, uh, it's generally not the profiles I'm drawn the most to. Um, Yeah. Is, um, well,
3: obviously, we know there's not that many women making knives, but is that the same for
6: luthiers? Uh, The ratio is not as drastic. Um, it, It is, you know, there is definitely more men than women, and that there's got to be, I mean, I, I've never seen numbers, I don't think they exist, but there's got to be at least 25-30% of women, which is, again, tons more than in life-making. Um, but not a lot of us own our own business, it's a lot of employee work. And that's that's an interesting, I, you know, the reasons I, uh, that are something else, but... Um, it's slight, slightly male-dominated in numbers, um, but not, not as much as as knife-making. And that's a recent thing. Like, even just 30 years ago, uh, there was definitely not 30, 30% women in, in violin-making. So it's been a good change. What do you think
3: happened? Did violin-making kind of have a moment?
6: Uh, it did. There's definitely, you know... It's not so different from what is happening right now in life making, I think, as to the amount of knowledge and info that's that's swirling around. So more people are drawn to the craft because it's more out there. Um, but no, I think it's general it's just a general change in mentality that, you know, women consider uh, trades a little bit more than they did 20 or 30 years ago, I think.
3: Guys, I'm going to leave you there imagining what a violin making version of Forged in Fire would look like. Please go and check out Eliane's work. She is making beautiful stuff. It is available on Eating Tools or you can have a look at her Instagram. It's at Eliane LeBlanc. I'm really grateful to her for coming on and having a chat with me. And now I'm going to chat to Grace Horn. Grace Horn is someone who's really important in my own personal knife-making journey. She was one of the first knife-makers who I went to see in person to talk to you about how the hell you get into making knives anyway. She makes beautiful work, mostly scissors these days, and because I'm running out of time, we're just going to go straight in with her talking about roots into knife-making.
1: There are kind of easy roots in, into it, and and you know I know that there are some people who start off sheath-making and then they'll... Start putting handles on pre-made knives, and then they'll start, you know, making the knives and that sort of thing. And in a way, that's a much more logical way forward than I think the way that um, you and I did it, which was, you know, we want to do everything now. Like I'm not gonna, (laughs) don't want to be doing half-assed stuff and kind of build up skills. (laughs) I want to do it now, all of it. So. Yeah,
3: <laughs> and trying to get someone to show you, right? But but you were sent away.
1: I Which guess I had. Fine. <laughs> you know, <it> was... <laughs> God knows what i have been doing now if I'd uh, if if I'd had that that open door. But yeah, I've been doing different stuff. That's fine.
3: Yeah, I wonder. Would you just say just maybe I can piece it back together later about what happened when you were getting into when you wanted to get into knife making.
1: So my, I was doing a degree in craft design technology and I was wanting to make my final pieces and I knew that I was wanting to make folding pocket knives. So um, I was down in South Wales. I contacted uh, Cutlers Hall in Sheffield and asked whether there was anybody still making knives and they said there wasn't, Um, or at least they didn't know of anybody who could show me how to make them. So I basically took a folding knife and took it apart and made three folding knives out of Damascus because there's no point in doing half-assed jobs. Is there? No, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, and they weren't—they weren't great. They looked fine, um, but I didn't get the spring geometry right. This is all kind of irrelevant. But I went away, and then a year or so later, a couple of years later, I found out that there was still. Um, an old guy in Sheffield who was making knives, and it was Stan Shaw, and I tried to contact him, and he was working Garden Street at the the time um, in Sheffield, and he was, when I came up to see him, I I basically, I just packed up my bags and decided to move to Sheffield to become his apprentice, and it never occurred to me that he wouldn't actually be able to take on an apprentice. Well, you Thank never him. talked to him before you went. You just did... no. <laughs> I tried to. <laughs> but He was seventy, and I thought, well, I'm going to seize the day. Um, so yeah, moved, packed up all the bags in London, and moved up to Sheffield, <laughs> camped on camped on his doorstep, and he said he was too old to take on an apprentice. Um and he was actually he was really helpful. He said he, he kitted me out with a whole load of springs and blades and told me to go away and figure it out myself because it wasn't that hard. Um, which I think had a wonderful level of confidence in my ability, <laughs> considering that that it was hard. It was bloody hard. But he said, you know, if, that if there was any problems, I could always go back. And kind of have a word with him, and I didn't very much actually. Um, I did try and figure it out on my own, or, you know, by my by myself. Um, but I actually, it was very important to me at that time. I then um, got on the metalwork and jewellery course in Sheffield, the um, and they accepted me doing uh, knives and small tools that was my, that I, that was all i did although it was in within metalwork and jewellery i i was they knew right from the start that i wasn't even going to look at anything that didn't cut
3: <laughs> why have you lost interest in pocket knives
1: because scissors why why would, you, why would you make pocket knives when you can make scissors scissors are definitely the the thing to do i love them
3: I feel like I remember meeting you at Blade the year before last and you were really encouraging lots of knife makers to make scissors. Yeah. I haven't seen anyone try it since.
1: Well, I'll I'll keep trying. I'd love people to make scissors. The more people who are making scissors, the better, I think. Yeah. I think that, that people, they're one of these tools that look deceptively easy and people approach them assuming that they're just two knives joined together with a screw and that's yeah that misses a whole load of subtlety that goes on so i think that there are that that actually what you're really saying holly is that i have i have been encouraging the a worldwide surge in people half finishing scissors <laughs> I think they get so far and they go, oh, no, that doesn't work. Oh, I oh God, I can't be bothered.
3: Yeah. Well, because you do lots of kind of drawings for your own designs, don't you? Is that just because you really like it, or do you feel like it's essential kind of planning to make the
1: pieces that you make? Both. Part of it is a product of necessity. So my my mother was very disabled, and I was her carer for 10 years and she lived next door to us, um, and I was getting, she'd need 24-hour daycare, and I would get a carer in three days a week for a couple of hours in the morning, and and then somebody at night as well, but it. she was quite happy for me to be at home within kind of calling distance, so if she fell or if she needed help, I could just nip around and, and help her, but that meant that When I went into the workshop, it was really important that I did what I needed to do. So all my thinking time, all my preparation time could be done at home. So all all the planning, all the modelling, all the technical drawings, they're all done in advance. When I go down to the workshop, all I'm trying to do, there's no more decision making that gets made in the workshop or very little. it's 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 really well resolved by the time I I get down there. So for you that's kind of about efficiency, because for a
3: long time you didn't have as much time maybe as you'd yeah. want in your workshop. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Well. Wow. Can't imagine being that organized that's at that moment. Slow,
1: you mean? That's slow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I'm definitely slow. <laughs> Glacial <and> kind of <laughs> <laughs> things seem to take their own pace with me. Um And as long as, as long as I don't forget, I mean, there are projects where I've realised that I've started them and then by the next year, I've completely forgotten I've started them. I I can't even find the bits. I don't even know where they are, you know, kind of thing. And then three years later, I'll find them and go, I had, I'd prepped that. That was ready to go and I'd completely forgotten about it, which is a little bit frustrating. Um, (laughs) it's nice to be able to have Community to call on, um, and that's one of the reasons why I actually appreciate being in 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 Sheffield. It's nice to have the space. I've had my workshop now for for ten years, um, and although I always had like a little bit of a space that I could use, it it is really nice to have that permanent space. But I don't have forging facilities there. I don't miss that that much because I've never had it. Um, and I guess
3: maybe in your work, the forging you do is to sort of create materials rather than forging
1: the work itself. Yes. I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that I'm predominantly a stock removalist. You know what? If, even if I've made the material myself, I then treat it like a material. I'm not overly keen on on knives particularly if we're talking about Damascus steel, where they're just like cookie-cutted out of this pattern steel. That doesn't appeal to me quite as much as the sort of work that forgers do to manipulate the pattern, to make the pattern part of the overall piece. But uh, as a designer, I think that there are ways that I can uh, mitigate some of that so that the Damascus that I make is specific for a project. Do you have, like, an example of what you mean? There'd been um, I did a, a little pair of snips. They didn't work, actually, but they needed to... Um, they were all EDM cut, and then I relocated them in the bar. So what I did was I did an inch square, really tight twist, so that after the scissors had been reassembled with the little pockets and whatever you around it, you could see that it had been cut out of a single bar. Oh my God, so it's book matched? Yeah, book matched in three dimensions.
3: Crazy. <laughs> what is EDM cutting?
1: Oh, it's magic. <laughs> it's spark eroding using wire, so it's electro discharge machining. But basically, what they do is they offer this brass wire up to the steel, and a spark jumps across it. And cuts through it And it doesn't actually touch the steel You can cut through 10 centimeters of steel Using EDM wire cutting It's incredibly slow But the cut is only a third of a millimetre Oh my god So you can get really precise Really beautiful It's expensive and it's slow But I love it So I've been doing a series of knives Of scissors Where I cut down the centre of the bar For the for the blades, so that the pattern, Damascus pattern, pattern matches across the scissors. And I think I'm probably the the only person who has ever done it. Mainly because I can't imagine anybody else being as crazy as to want to do it. But uh, yeah, it works. It works <laughs> beautifully. It works
3: really well. So when you go to kind of design. project or make your plan for your project would you kind of be looking at the piece of steel and imagining like how the pattern is going to come
1: through if you cut off different layers yes that it depends so i divide my projects into three so if if the spark the initial trigger that made me think the project is a kind of um is a story or a um or a concept then I kind of put that under the umbrella of art. Um, okay, these terms are going to be really loose because the finished piece, I don't think anybody would actually be able to identify the difference. But for instance, Twisted Seamstress, uh, the pair of scissors that I did a while ago, where they were, the whole point was around the idea of fallen women and women using scissors as a self-defense um, piece and that sort of thing that that was very much around a concept and around a story. So that kind of gets put in my head under art. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are people, um, and there are occasions in the past where, where people have come to me, or I've created my own brief, and it's quite need specific. And then that falls under kind of a design project so it might not end up looking like a design project but I have very tight requirements that I need to fit in but the majority of my pieces are craft pieces because the original inspiration the spark that set them off is the material or a technique so cutting two axes through that bar of Damascus steel and seeing what is revealed, how I can showcase both the technique and the material. Um, that's often the inspiration for a lot of my pieces. So I might it might not be um, a piece of steel that's sitting in front of me straight away, but it might be. You know, I might be making the material to kind of explore whatever, con- whatever idea that I'm thinking of at the time and I imagine those are as as craft pieces because they're they're material and technology driven and I want to make things that really <laughs> truth to materials gets bandied around a lot but actually I want things that are honest I don't want things that are that pretend to be something they're not so I I never never design my scissors to look like they've been forged unless they have been um and yeah
3: yeah interested interesting what you're saying there as well about there's something I really like about your work that you do I don't know that there is so much kind of femininity in it but also that like you're saying that you sort of weave in narratives about women's experience into your work do you feel like that your own experience as a woman comes into your work at all as
1: well or you're just interested in um, I don't know. I. It's accidental. It's not something that I set out to do. I don't deliberately think, oh, well, you know, I'll I'll do female-looking pieces or things that deal with feminist issues. So it's just an accidental percolation of things. I think. Apart from the fact that there's no denying, you know, even just my way of working where I said, you know, that it has to fit in with, uh, nowadays, I don't have a, a caring role, but, you know, family life and making sure. So little things like figuring out that, um, that I could coffee etch my materials, my Damascus, means that that's automatically going to be something that I'm going to get excited about not only the results really good but I can do it at home in the kitchen whilst cooking dinner that kind of combining domestic and studio practice is is important to me and I don't think that I don't think it's necessarily a gender thing but I do think that it happens more frequently um that kind of juggling two roles happens more frequently with people who have a caring role whether they're male or female yeah
3: absolutely i don't know if that's the like direct connection but i am interested in why um especially now that knife making's kind of been having a moment there's so much uptake in it but it all seems to still be men you know i hope that by doing this show more women will listen to this episode than would normally listen. I think Knife Talk has about 1% um, women who listen, which is probably the same amount. It's probably less. I don't know what percentage of women make knives, but I'd like that, yeah, more women hear the show than there are women knife makers. So we're hoping for at least
1: 40. (laughs) I know. I don't know why it's considered so intimidating to have a go at it yeah i don't know why it should be i would i'd love to see i'd love to see more pe- more women doing knife making i don't see any reason why it should be gendered
3: i suppose some people would say that it's not most of the women i spoke to said that they didn't feel like there was barriers for them getting into knife making but then if there aren't those barriers where is everybody
1: i don't know It is a tricky subject because we can't... I I, I really don't think that the knife-making community puts up any barriers to women going into knife-making. I have never found anything other than 100% support and welcome from the knife-making community as a whole. I don't know what the solution is. Um, I think it's just one of these time. It's just going to take time.
3: What do you think about the idea of
1: taking over the Knife Talk podcast for International Women's Day? I think that's great. Um, It's really interesting. And I think that just the fact that you had to sit down and make a list of female knife makers, I think is really interesting because... uh, You know, as you say, knife making is a small part of the craft world and female knife makers are even smaller. And it feels like it feels like finding a tribe like, oh, look, there there are other female knife makers as well. And it was it was really nice to see so many friends on on the on the list and some new names, some names I hadn't or hadn't heard of for a while. So um, I think it's just nice to be reminded that we're there, really.
3: I was kind of shocked when I made the list and realised that it's just me and you in the UK.
1: Yeah, that's pretty sad, isn't it?
3: I don't know. Yeah, for me, I just do feel excited when I find out that women are doing it. I do feel like it's It's been...
1: It's a subdivision of categories, though, isn't it? And it doesn't really matter um, which subdivision we're talking about. So when I'm over at Blade Show... And another UK knife maker comes up to me, kind of like, oh my God, what are mine? What are mine? Oh, you know, how exciting, you know, UK knife maker. So, in this huge group of knife makers, I found a little bit of my tribe. And then, you know, if I kind of, I don't know, find one uh, in Sheffield. Okay, in Sheffield is a little bit difficult because, you know, you throw a ball and you hit a knife maker, okay, you don't, but, you know, kind of finding a new knife maker in Sheffield, yeah, that's really exciting, that's kind of interesting, um, and then also, you know, finding another woman, oh, look, that's another subgroup of a subgroup, and, you know, yeah, that somehow making those connections in a larger group is always going to be nice, um, it doesn't mean that the rest of them are excluded it just means that it's kind of just in the same way i guess that kind of as a gender aside you know if you find somebody who supports the same football team as you in a group that of i don't know embroiderers or something like that you know then that's that's a point of connection that i think is really important
3: yeah totally do you think that kind of the kind of formal part of your training, then, like your masters, or going to—I I guess—has it really helped you, or is yes. it something you would advise to people who are trying to get into these crafts? Because I think now a lot of people are kind of self-taught, but I personally think there's
1: limitations there. You know, I—I I think that those. I know that Forge Empire gets a lot of of stick, but it—the very fact that people lend realize that it's even possible i think is great in the same way you know that glass blowers and kind of those sort of programs you know the fact that people go oh yeah yeah i could do that that would be something that i'd be interested in doing even if they're not prepared or not even interested in taking it up kind of um kind of long term or or professionally the fact that they then have um they might go away and have a weekend course, but they then have a clearer understanding, comprehension of the work that goes in to the stuff that they see around them all the time and they take for granted. And that can only be a good thing from a craft maker's point of view.
3: If I was a podcast master, I would probably know the best way to seamlessly transition from that conversation with Grace Horn into the next one. But I'm a knife maker, so I'm just going to say go and check out Grace Horn on Instagram. She is at Grace underscore Horn underscore designs. She's making beautiful stuff over there and she posts up daily at the moment to try and remind people that Blade Show is coming. Now I'm going to chat to Andrea DeLeon. She is the dre over on Instagram. There's actually a little link in her bio at the moment where you can buy a collaboration t-shirt that she did with Steve Schwarzer. If you don't know she, Steve Schwarzer, he is a knife-making legend and the t-shirt is pretty legendary in itself. I really wanted to chat to Andrea because she's got such a cool and interesting varied background. She's a glass blower she's a sculptor she's a jeweler let's just jump in straight away and talk to her let her explain so this is a bit mad right but I've heard that the easiest work to get as a glass blower is blowing bongs and dildos oh totally yeah absolutely 100% yeah I was wondering if that's how you ended up making knives like no no shade on the bong blowers but like
7: Yeah. No, no shade on them at all. They're actually incredibly talented. It's just, it's amazing to see because it's kind of paradoxical, right? You would think that um, they don't, you know, they just get up and make their own rules and work as little or as much as they want to, but they are actually, from what I've seen are probably like the hardest working people. They just 16 hours a day, you know, and it takes a lot of stamina to be in front of that flame for that long. Um, Not only that, but the margin for error, like, you know, it's glass, it's gonna, it's gonna break if you manipulate it wrong. But yeah, basically, I I don't know if you noticed this, but like every material has its like niche market, right? If you're doing ceramics, it's like pots, you know, uh, mugs and stuff. And then glass is pipes, bongs and dildos. And I feel like everyone has like made one at some point, all the glassblowers. So it's a huge market to tap into, especially now. And then, yeah, with steel, it's like, you know, if you're a blacksmith, it's like gates, railings, knives, kitchenware. Um, so I've, even since undergrad, I've been, I focused on jewelry mostly because, I mean, it, it was really exciting to me. And the physics of, of the materials were really um, captivating, but Uh, mostly because I felt like it was the most viable way to be able to turn my art degree into something that I could
3: capitalize on, which is tricky to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so did you kind of go then from jewelry into knife making?
7: No, the path
3: was a little
7: more um, erratic than that. So after I graduated I basically, the first job I ever got was a production glassblower for Grab GrabLab. So I was making pipes like for a big company. That's when I first started really kind of experiencing doing production, which was a, a really interesting learning curve because before that it was just like, you know, art pieces, like one singular, like put in a ton of hours into one piece and rarely make that same piece again. And after that, you know, the, that business model was so erratic and it would change from month to month that I, um, got an opportunity to learn machining for, uh, a company that basically fixed electron microscopes. It's a small company. And so I learned how to machine on a, on a mill and a metal lathe. Uh, and it was, you know, a lot of those skills transferred, you know, a lot of the same technical skills.
3: Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, because I feel like your background kind of gives you this really interesting foundational knowledge that a lot of other knife makers wouldn't have.
7: Yeah, I actually, every student that I have, I tell them every single job I've gotten is because I have those foundations, those eye for details that you know, what the you ha, you can't get around it. You need to know when your pieces work hard and how much you can push it like how to manipulate this thing the fit up has to be super precise uh things don't always work out like the first time and um you know that that I prefer precision and uh thermal shock and all all of that is that absolutely translated to the the glass really easily because it's just you know uh similarly like you you're just avoiding thermal shock and you're trying to manipulate this thing with heat, right? Um uh and so and you need to anneal it the same way, you know. So that translated also with like the knives where you need to do like thermocycling and uh normalizing and quenching and all that. There's similar theories in glass. Um just keeping everything, all the molecular structure uniform. Machining, though, is a little bit more about, like, just keeping everything cool, right? (laughs) Just not overheating anything. Um, But uh, at the same time, it kind of gives you, like, a reverse engineering mindset of how to subtractively remove material in a precise way. Mm. So that also helps with the knives as far as, like, maintaining a specific angle, removing material from a certain area, Uh, when to remove material when to heat treat you know um so it was it was just kind of like a collective education I guess in the trades I was always trying to look for jobs that would pay me to learn something
3: so when you started making knives it wasn't really as a hobby you kind of knew that you wanted to make some to sell
7: yeah I knew that um I resisted it at first uh my dad was the one suggesting it and of course being a contrarian I was like I don't know it just seemed so limiting creatively because um, I was like, well, it's just like beveled steel sandwich between some wood. Like, you know, how, <laughs> you know, I think I was, I thought I was going to get bored of it. And then I really started educating myself. And it was actually a glass blower that convinced me. He was like, definitely like, you need to go into this. And the more I dug deeper, the more I was like, proved myself totally wrong. Like the the stuff that people are making now, the combinations of materials, types of steel, uh, the patterns. That, I mean, it's endless. It's totally endless. And people are still out there experimenting. Uh, so I, I i knew that it would uh, draw more people. Um, more I mean, because I think I don't really – I have more trouble selling, like, the jewelry. And mostly that's my fault because you need models and – you know, a different setup to market them. Um, yeah. And um but I basically just bugged this knife maker Thomas Rucker. He was based out of Houston. He's this old grumpy veteran. Like, um, you know and he you know, being a female, he was kinda hesitant and I was like, Look, I'm a machinist. Like I know my way around. Just let me help you. You don't you know, you don't have to pay me for that week like I'll just help you with stuff that you don't want to do and basically what kind of
3: knives was he making
7: he was doing production like he was busting them out and even made uh double wheeled uh hollow grinders where you just like slip the the knife in and out and he just like rough grinds them in like two seconds and I'm like god you know (laughs) <laughs> but he yeah, he had all, he had the equipment. He had like three different grinders with different attachments on them so he can just go from one to the other and not waste time. He was pumping them out, like finishing like three knives a day kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
3: Um and, and what did he have you doing when you were there for the week?
7: I did some spine filing, some uh grinding, I have random tasks really. Um He even showed me how to do some leather working. Um uh, how to stabilize the wood, how to, um, uh, make the pommels. Um, I made a guard for him. So he was like, well, you're the jeweler, like do something fancy. And I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> we'll see how it works. You know, um, just random tasks like that buffing.
3: Right. That sounds like a really good experience to get an insight into production style knife making. But now do you have your own workshop? I do have my own workshop, and I was just—I'm
7: so grateful. I got a, a really beautiful small forge from uh, a friend of mine, uh, Kit Casati. We just connected recently. We're both jewelers, and we both have uh, worked for like similar companies that do like large-scale fiberglass stuff for museums and movie sets and all that stuff. And then we we both make knives, so it's just you know, cut from the same cloth. And he had this forge that he wasn't using. So I'm in the middle of setting that up in my shop. But, um, yeah, right now I have basically like a two-car garage with uh, a ton of equipment now, um, three kilns. I just got the glass lathe and I'm going to need help from the, from the, you know, the community to get that. <laughs> And on the bench where it's supposed to be. Um, I just wanted to like build a, a bench with casters. So I wouldn't have a hard time moving that thing around, but I have, you know, it's not ideal to have the glass and the metal stuff in the same space, but um, you know, I'm going to make it work. So I have all like the metal stuff on one side and the glass stuff on the other. But I also, I mean, I I try to make that space as, flexible as possible, so I can do molds, do more casting, basically anything that um, I need to do at that time. It's hard prioritizing <laughs> what needs to get done. Really, the, the pandemic forced me to um, make my own space, finally. I was, I was never long enough in one place to really, truly set up a proper space. But I've always been able to do it, you know, as long as you have like a grinder and some heat, you know, you can, you can make stuff happen. So
3: yeah, totally. What kind of knives are you working on at the moment?
7: I'm actually going to be working on uh, some kitchen knives right now, uh, which is rare for me. I, I usually stick to like, you know, everyday carry kind of, util- like just useful knives that I, you know, stuff that I would use and people tend to enjoy them, especially here in Texas.
3: And what about your work with people like Steve Schwartzer? Is he a mentor of yours?
7: Yeah. Um, I still consider him a mentor and that was like a recent development. Um, mostly it was like Thomas and then like friends, um, from, you know, I know not sounds silly, but through Instagram, uh, that we've just developed the rapport. Um, I consider Nick Anger, Angé Nick Anger, uh, a mentor. He's, he sends me like his the steel that he's not using to collaborate with, and um and then Neil reached out to me last year to uh, go to Blade Show. Yeah, Neil Kamimura. Um, I owe him a lot. That's so. That's how I met Steve, and I still um like he's he's such a wonderful like spirit. Um, him and Laura. Um, but yeah, I went to a shop with, um, with Neil and we just collaborated, um, with each other. So,
3: but yeah, it must've been wild when Laura was doing it. It's like Audra Draper's the first ABS, um, uh, master Smith and then Laura Schwartzer and yeah. Yeah. Very, um, alone out there doing it together.
7: Yes. Yeah. I just, um, her approach is really, um, inspiring to see. It's really like kind of, innocent and curious and experimental like she knows what she likes and she gets excited about um you know doing her style. she does more like Skagel style knives um but her i mean i i just remember like at least the impression i got is even though she's made many knives like it was just as she was just as excited about doing a brand new one it was just like the same novel excitement um so i thought that was really cute um and same with steve like they just they just like goof around i love their rapport with each other um that's actually how they became friends because steve's was like one of the only shops that she could go to and work and make knives without being harassed essentially is what they told me at least they're just you know best friends anyway so it's. You know, it's cute to see them like tease each other.
3: <laughs> yeah. And they just love making knives.
7: Yeah, yeah, totally.
3: And but when you were there, what were you doing with them?
7: So we were making uh some mosaics, so we did a couple of knives. I did a collaboration with Neil. It was like about a seven inch chef's knife, um with a brutal uh forge finish. And then we did a. Um, a million layer Damascus, a million layers, a million layers.
3: Who's <laughs> counting?
7: Uh, we we were counting, yeah. Uh, because I don't even remember with the layers that we started out with. I think it was like seven. Could be wrong, but I mean the difference between half a million and a, and a million is one fold. So if you think about it that way, um, yeah, it sounds easy. now <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Um, With that like 300 pound Chambersburg, I mean, it was super, I love that thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, they, uh, then Laura and Neil um, put us, like collaborated on a a Skagel style handle for that. And then uh, we just made some canister Damascus. Uh, Steve and I were just kind of messing around.
3: Wow, that's so that. cool. So, all of you were kind of involved in the whole, all the different pieces going on.
7: Yeah, it was an intense, like, couple days. Um, fun. Yeah, it's been great.
3: It's amazing as well that you're going around kind of meeting so many different knife makers and trying to learn so much, you know?
7: I feel like I think I mentioned this in like a written article before, but I feel like if, like, you're genuine, people can like really pick up on that. And, um, you know, having like an instant portfolio like on your phone that they can reference opens up a lot of doors um, as far as like, you know, you're not just some, you know, a random person trying to take away someone's time, but you're really trying to contribute to a craft. And so people will pick up on that. Me being a teacher, I pick up on that. I can I can tell when someone's just trying to cut corners or really excited about a certain thing, and they really genuinely want to learn. And I'm op- with open arms, want to tell them everything. Um, so I feel like that's a, a good attitude to to approach it with. And people, you know, tend to share openly about it.
3: Yeah, keep the arms open. Yeah, I think it's confidence too sometimes though maybe some people for different reasons have more of it you know I definitely feel like um this kind of imposter syndrome sometimes which is crazy because what is it about like I am making knives you know (laughs) really beautiful ones at that (laughs) thanks so much yeah but it's so funny where I don't know I can really relate to what you're saying as well about sometimes I see other people's work they're proud of it and they're happy with it, you know, and it's not bad work, but there's something in me sometimes that kind of spends so much, probably longer than necessary on a project. Cause I get really, Oh yeah, for sure. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
7: Um, yeah, I think it's just, I always try to promote, uh, integrity in your work and, um, like I'm really glad I see that all the time also with like jewelry type stuff where I'm like, you know, the price point and what they're pumping out is, uh, you know, something that is not of my aesthetic. Right. Um, so I think it's important as a maker to tap into like what, what matters to you. Is it pumping things out or is it like making this crafted thing? You know, it's, it's a, it's an item. It's, might be an heirloom it's something that's going to be used um and taken care of or not you know like once I hand it to you I intend for you to like use that thing I love seeing um a lot of my knives like that my friends have just beat up you know and I love it because it's like um you know, they're actually, it gives it a history. They're using it. I know that my knives hold up. Like, you know. yeah. Um, so, and I mean, I think it's a shame to, when I give it to them, I want it to be pristine. Um, but I do enjoy seeing the history after its use. Right. I think that's another reason why I, I enjoy the high carbon steels. Um, mostly See that because, patina developing. Yes. It's, um, I I enjoy that. There's like a, you know, more ephemeral quality of it um, that I think is
3: marks where it's been. I think that's cool. Um, Do you think um, if you were kind of going to give advice to yourself, going back to when you were getting started making knives, is there anything that you would do different now?
7: Yeah, I don't know. That's a good one. (laughs) I'm surprised at how far this has gone. I'm like honored to even like be interviewed at this point. Um, and the fact that I went to Blade Show last year and like, I, I think I would tell my, my younger, I would love to show my younger self like all the things I've accomplished or have done. Yeah. And just to like have patience. It's going to be good days and bad days, but you just have to like um, schedule time for the bad days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. But, how about you? What what would you tell your younger self?
3: I don't know, man. Probably Oh, uh, it's weird to think about cuz I just never would have imagined that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah, so <I've... laughs> it's almost like I feel like if I went back to give myself advice, then I'd end up like somewhere totally different, you know. Um, and that's weird to think about, but I wish that, I mean, I still have problems with, um, confidence, I think, um, in with my work as a maker, like even things like just stuff that seems kind of stupid that I should just be able to like post up photos and stuff on Instagram, but it gives me so much anxiety that, um, I'm really like hesitant to do it. So I wish that this something I could say to like reassure myself years ago that would hopefully mean that I didn't feel that way now as well, you know, kind of like that. It doesn't matter. I say this stuff to myself all the time, you know, this is our one tiny little life and just try to be kind and try to enjoy it, you know, and forgive yourself when you're a dick and when you fuck stuff up because you can do it different the next day.
7: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's great great, uh, thing to take note of for sure. Um, I mean, yeah, I think I I do that too. I struggle with a lot of stuff that I, you know, post, but I, I try like, like you, I try not to think too much about it because I know, I mean, I have a lot higher expectations of myself and, um, you know, I still struggle from imposter syndrome a lot. Um, but at the same time, it's, yeah, like, I want to live my life unapologetically, too. So um, I'm just trying to be as genuine as possible. And I don't think anyone can knock you for doing that, you know? But it's, like, speaking of, like, blown away, that one thing that I learned about that show, from that show, is just, like, the sheer, like, confidence that like <laughs> glass blowers have to just go out there and if they fail they fail but they're still out there doing it so I try to like have that attitude as well
3: all right guys now we're going to jump over and talk to Delaina I am so excited that she was up for coming on here because she was a very early inspiration to me in knife making Delaina is a Knife maker and a goldsmith who specializes in lockback folding knives. And when I first discovered her work, it was in David Jerome's amazing book, Custom Folding Knives. And in there, Delana talks about being the sole author of her work, meaning she does everything from making the steel to making the hardware to embellishing the knives herself. In the book, her knives are dripping with gold, the kind of knives you'd think Cardi B would have as her everyday carry. And I'm just so excited that you're here, Delana. I'd love if you could tell us about how you got into making knives.
4: Well, I'm delighted that you asked me to participate in this, and that was a wonderful book that you were able to find to begin with, because there is so much valuable information in there. David Durham did a wonderful job on those books. Um, I got started. Well, I took a college class in jewelry making and loved it, and knew that that's what I wanted to do was work with metal. So I was all set to be a jeweler, and I became a jeweler. I started my own business. I I, I spent three years in college, and then I was married to who is now my ex-husband, and he was a military man, so we moved around a lot. And I would find experienced older jeweler mentors to help me wherever I had moved to. And they were, they were always men at that time. You didn't see women jewelers at that time, because this was back in the 70s. And I just had some great, valuable mentors. One of the things I did on my own very early on, three years after I started making jewelry, and I was off, uh, I, my husband was out to see, my ex-husband was out to see, and I had a fabulous book. It's a Penland School of Crafts jewelry making book, and it had... I forget how many projects in there but the one that absolutely enthralled me was a little slip joint folder and it had very rudimentary designs in there the the layout was on a piece of graph paper and I just I absolutely had to make a knife so I took an old file and I annealed it and sawed it out with my jeweler saw to the pattern parts that I tried to figure out the exact sizes from by just doing another piece of graph paper. The the instructions in the book were really rudimentary and I I struggled <laughs> a lot, <laughs> to say the least, cuz I, I I don't have a mechanical mind naturally. I didn't have a father that worked on cars or lawnmowers or anything like that, so I just never was exposed to any of that kind of thought process. And I I saw that blade out and I filed it out by hand. <laughs> I filed the bevels in and I decorated the bevels with um, a center punch, it had my name on it and a couple little symbols and stuff. And I was like, as we often are when we're first starting to learn how to work with metal, we get excited about seeing it finished and we don't take all the scratches out and stuff like that. So it's it's pretty rough. <laughs> But I was so proud of this. And I made the handle out of sterling silver and 14-karat gold.
3: Oh, my God. It's going big right away.
4: (laughs) Well, I love those materials. So that was what I wanted to do. And I only had a little hand drill at the time. And I had to go over to the machine shop that the dependents could use over at the Air Force base. And I'm sure they never saw females in there ever. Because I didn't really know what to do with me, and I, I, I didn't know how to use a drill press or anything, and I nobody showed me, and I probably bought six or seven bits. For, you know, I was drilling the the blade pivot hole, and I broke a bunch of them, and I had to keep buying them from the guy, and he never offered to show me how to do it right or anything. Which was fine. I didn't really care. I I just wanted to get it done. And I was just all excited about it. And this is how you learn, is experimenting, trying stuff that you don't know how to do. So I went to the hardware store. I got a nail that fit the hole and cut that into sections and got the straightest one. And that was going to be my pivot pin. And I used smaller nails for the lock. I call it a lock bar because I'm doing lockbacks now, but it was the back spacer part. And was that a friction folder? (laughs) It was a slip joint. Oh my God, amazing. I know. I know. (laughs) That was my first thing. And I got this thing done and I was so proud of it. I was just, it didn't lock up very well and it was just really pretty pathetic, but I thought it was just wonderful. I absolutely was just so in love with this thing. And I didn't make another knife for a while, like 17 years. But the reason I got really and decided to go for it with knives was I, as a jeweler, I would, I had done a couple craft fairs. I really hated them, so I didn't do that very often. But, um, I was involved with a, a craft group in a, with a local museum back in upstate New York. And they had chosen me to be the artist that they interviewed in the local newspaper to advertise this thing. So when the photographer came to my house. I had jewelry out and I had that little folder was out also. So that was in the picture for the newspaper. And I get to the craft fair and I'm happily enjoying my time there. And a man and a woman walk up to my table and the man said, oh, I see you make knives. And I just can't wait to tell him about this wonderful little folder that I've made. So I take it out of my case, and I'm showing him, and I'm just so proud of this thing. And he looks it all over, doesn't say a word, hands it to his wife. She looks it all over, doesn't say a word. He hands it back to me, and he says, well, I make knives, too. Would you like to see one? And he pulled this incredible, amazing art folder out of his pocket, and I just wanted to crawl under my table because my folder was so Horrible. And this is obviously an extraordinarily skilled person showing <laughs> so me their work. And uh, it turned out that it was Jim Schmidt, who is one of the all time great knife makers in the entire world.
3: <laughs> did you know that when you met him?
4: No, I did not. I did not know that at all. He was a very selfie facing man. He just he was not at all a braggart. You'd never know. And he They walked up to me and looked like lumberjack clothes. They were very low-key. <laughs> so there was no way for me to know. <laughs> <laughs> and he happened to live not too, you know, like 20 minutes away from me. Well, I, I didn't see him after that for a couple of years. I became the uh, the chairperson of the, an annual juried craft exhibition. It wasn't a show. It was an exhibition that ran for six weeks. And one of my ideas had been to have some invited artists that were highly skilled in their craft to also exhibit in this show. And so I remembered him, and I called him up and asked if he would be willing to loan us a couple of mimes. And he said he could do one. So I stopped by his house, and I got this absolutely fabulous Damascus folder with an ivory fluted handle, and it was just exquisite. I still at this point did not know who he was, and he said, yes, I I need this for a show later, but you can have it for six weeks. So we chatted and had it in the show, and it was really nice that he was kind enough to do that. And again... After returning that to him, I didn't see him for another couple of years until in 1990, 91, I guess it was, um, You know, I had a, this male friend who had thought he might like to make knives, and I said, oh, well, I know this guy. But maybe he'll let you come up and you can talk to him. So I called Jim and just said, I have this friend that would like to maybe make knives. Would it be okay for you to talk to him? So he invited us up to the shop, and went up there and he was making Damascus and I was just like oh my god this is the greatest thing ever (laughs) I love, and I I had I loved I, I had been intrigued by Damascus steel before that I just saw the patterns were fantastic and it was just a very exciting metal and Jim said we'll come back up tomorrow and he said if you want you can try making a billet which just was like absolutely the best thing anybody had ever offered to to teach me at that point so we went back up the next day and Jim had a couple billets welded up you know tack welded together and we were supposed to forge weld them together well the guy just could not get the hang of it and he was totally intimidated by it I did not have that issue I, (laughs) I loved it I was absolutely just sold on it that's what I wanted to do. I wanted now to make knives right now I want to make knives. Why were you so into it? I like the i I like the physicality of it there's you're really involved with this piece of steel you know <laughs> you're you're sweating and you're hot and there's fire there's kind of a dance with the power hammer and it was just it just appealed to my soul. you know I had liked knives before I saw Jim's, but you know I loved what he was doing. They were exciting. They were different. They were not what I had thought of as your basic folding knife before that. So Jim was thrilled to have somebody that was as interested as I was. Plus, he didn't have to start me off as a very basic beginner because I had, at this point, 17 or 18 years of goldsmithing. And I was a full-time art jeweler and goldsmith and he didn't have to teach me how to finish. I understood the processes and it was on a different scale than what i have been doing with some different tools, but it translated. You know, he didn't have to hold my hand on it. He'd show me how to do something. I'd go home and I'd work on it and then go back and show him.
3: So is that when Jim became a mentor for you?
4: Yes. Yep. And I still, at this point, did not know who he was in the knife world. Oh, my God. I didn't. I just, I mean, I just felt really grateful because, and this was not unusual for me because I had gone out and I had found older male mentors in the jewelry world before this just because I want to learn. I love to learn. And if you're going to learn, you go find somebody that knows what what it is that you want to (laughs) learn. And so... I wasn't uncomfortable having approached him and and gotten into this mentor-student situation with him. That was just kind of normal to me. And uh, it wasn't until that spring. This was probably in November before, or it was late in the year. And the next big show he was doing was down in... um, New York City in Manhattan, which was not that far away from me. I mean, it's a three-hour train trip. That doesn't seem that far. (laughs) And so it wasn't until I went down that that spring. It was in March. I went down to that because I just wanted, it was just everything knives. I just want to know this stuff, you know, and I was just into it at that point. And I went down to that show and, uh, you know, talking to the different knife makers, I was just just in heaven, you know, just, it was a wonderful experience, and they, when I'd say Jim Schmidt is my, is who I'm learning from, they would be like, oh my God, <laughs> you're learning from Jim Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I didn't realize, I mean, he was one of the top five knife makers in the world, and I had no clue, I was so, so fortunate, and just a great human being, just, he and his wife both became very dear friends to me, he was, like a, a second father to me, and he was really just a fantastic human being. So that's how I got into making knives. And I went, I became full time as a knife maker in 1995. So coming into the knife world, it was really a joy to just have so many people be so helpful.
3: Yeah, it is amazing how generous the knife making community are with their knowledge. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to jump forward a little bit now yeah. and get on to asking you about your own experiments with
4: Damascus. Sure. Um, I primarily work with ladder pattern. I like it. It's, um, it's a really beautiful pattern if you do it correctly. And I, I it just appeals to me. And the composites were just coming out when I first started making knives and I was really interested in in that that idea, and I had done a five bar composite dagger blade that was I was really thrilled with. I had gone to Rob Hudson, who was a really excellent master Smith. He was doing composites and he was one of the first ones getting really taken off with it and I had gone to a workshop at his forge, and I had made this five-bar composite dagger blade, which was long. It was like 17 inches long, and it was a great process. I loved it, and that was very interesting to me, and while I was there with him, I wanted to somehow work this this idea into my folder blades, and one of the things that I had noticed that I never liked from a design standpoint, was to see a seam at the tip where, uh, like, like the five bar composite that I made for the, this dagger, it was four different twists. Uh, one twist of, I'm trying to remember what it was now, 24 layers, I think it was. That's the two outsides. And then the inner was two twists of 48 layers. And then the center wedge was W-2, for contrast. But this had the seam from the center wedge of the W-2 down to the tip where those other four twisted pieces met. And most people did it that way at that time, and I just did not care for that seam. It disrupted it to me. And I could see that it would be more difficult and more wasteful to not have that seam. I didn't care about the waste. But I liked the idea of not having that seam of those two parts coming together. And so I talked to Rob while while I was there at his workshop. And I, I had this idea of I would make a billet of ladder pattern. And then I would saw a wedge out of it and forge weld a wedge of W-2 tool steel into there. So now I've got contrasting from the ladder pattern to the W-2. And I like that idea. And there would be no no seam down there. And Rob said to me, he said, well, I don't think that's going to work. He said, getting that tip to weld is going to be really difficult. And I just don't know if you'll be able to do that or not. And... That's all somebody's got to say to me is, I don't think you can do that. and (laughs) (laughs) I have to try it and see if I can or not. So I didn't have my own forge, but Jim let me use his. And when he went away, like to a show or something, I would house it for his his and Linda's dogs, and he would let me go and use his forge to make Damascus. And it was wonderful, but he was very specific about I could only do this when he wasn't there. He wanted to make sure that he could say, I wasn't there and I didn't do anything to help her. Okay. Because there, you know, he was very aware that there are going to be people saying he's making my stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just human nature. So he had that, an alibi. Yeah. Yeah. So I went back and I, I did my idea. I would make this perfectly good billet of ladder pattern and cut this wedge out of the middle of it. and, trace, you know, scribe the shape of the wedge onto a piece of W-2 and then cut that out and forge weld that in there. And it worked. I was able to do it. I, I know I didn't do it the way other people would have done it because my thought process coming from a different field is different than the way knife makers learn to think. So I just came figured out how I would do it, how it made sense for me to do it, and I did it. And I was able to get it to work, and I was absolutely thrilled. And then I had this canvas of the W-2 that I could selectively etch whatever pattern I wanted into that. And the reason that I did it in an etching way rather than making all sorts of little shapes out of steel and making these composites with in that way too is because I my design aesthetic is I don't want any distortion in those shapes that I'm etching onto the W-2. And to weld them in there, I'm gonna be getting distortion and I don't that's not acceptable for what it is that I'm making. <laughs> but I was able to figure out a way to get that that tip of that W-2 to weld into that that space that's always going to be there. It's kind of a long process. It's not It's not as fast as a lot of people like to work, but my goal is to create the vision I see in my head. That doesn't mean it's always efficient.
3: <laughs> <laughs> You've actually innovated in loads of ways with your work, right? Like um, with your yep. Delaney Dots? Yep.
4: That was... Um, that one, I, I'm still... I'm still happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> Could you explain to us what they are? Oh, yeah. They are opening assists um kind of like a thumb stud or something like that that they're in re- in place of a nail nick because I I have never liked a nail nick. I think they design-wise they are just disruptive and technically and I mean functionally they rip your nails apart. They are hard to get a hold of, and they just don't work. And my coming up with the Delaney Dots was in response to a mistake that I made in my newness and inexperience making knives. I think this it was on my third folder, and I had made the lock so that the blade sat too far into the knife. So it was impossible to either fit a a thumb stud on it or pull it out (laughs) (laughs) and and here i am i didn't notice this until i've got the scales on there because it was the thickness of the scales that made it so hard to get your finger in there so i thought about it and thought about it because i i mean i've got this thing getting ready to be done and i then you know what am i gonna do it's gonna and i the only thing i could have done was put a nail nick in there and it was I was determined I was not going to do that, because I hate those. So I'm thinking, what can I do? What can I do? And I'd always done a lot of embellishing with um, gold or silver dots um, inlaid into ebony and things like that for a long time in my jewelry. So I thought, well, what if I had this raised dot right here, or a couple of them, that my finger would just be able to get, you know, friction on that it would make it easy to pull it out. So I went to Jim, him, and I explained my dilemma, and I told him what my solution was, was to drill through the blade and rivet these dots all the way through so that your finger would get friction and, and some place to grip on both sides. And he was always very quiet, and he would just listen, and he wouldn't feel the need to say a whole lot while you were talking. And I got done, and he just looked at me and he said I have never seen anybody do that it's a great idea and I'm going to steal it <laughs> <laughs> and that just absolutely thrilled me because for him to think of something that I had come up with on my own worthy of him using just was a huge honor to me and he said I'm going to call them Delana Dots so that's how they got that name <laughs>
3: That's something that you're happy for other people to use, right, as long as they credit you?
4: Yeah. Well, you know, it might have been a good idea at the time to patent it. It probably would have been a great idea. But to me, it was just, a, a, you know, as soon as people saw it, everybody started doing it. And I did have several knife makers that came to me and asked me if I would mind if they did it. Most did not. But, you know, I'm always really grateful for those guys that did come to me and say, I really want to use those dots. Do you mind? And and Jim was very careful that he made sure everybody knew they were Delana dots. So as soon as people saw him him do it and me do it, that was it took off. <laughs> That's
3: really interesting because I feel like I've only ever seen Delana dots on your work and Jim's work. Um, but anyway, I am running out of time, so I want to kind of segue over to another point about trying to encourage you to put up a bit more of your process and your current work on Instagram just so we can all have a nosy because I think like in David Jerome's book, (laughs) it's always really (laughs) exciting to be able to see into the workshops or, you know, have a look at what people whose work you're really inspired by are working on. Um, But at the same time, I know for myself that it can be very anxiety inducing and it can be very disruptive to have to get out a camera and try and document a certain
4: it is and it's it really slows your process down and you have to stop and take pictures of everything and i think too um you know, i w- one of the things you said there is people looking online for inspiration and i want to throw this little idea out there that um, I think that there's, I think it is harder to design if you have too much outside in input. There are so many tens of thousands of photos that we see every single day on the Internet that I think it can be very difficult to... Not be influenced by what we see, does that make sense absolutely in terms of in terms of designing, and so I caution people that it's fun and it's interesting, but be aware that if you design from what you see, you come off as being derivative and not unique
3: <laughs>
4: yeah, totally. I
3: think now, especially. There's such an oversaturation of images that you could be exposed to other people's work and kind of forget and maybe end up thinking that it's your own because you're just overwhelmed with information. Exactly. Unfortunately, Delena, I only have time for one more question with you, so I wanted to just quickly pick your brains and see if you had any advice for someone who's getting into making knives now.
4: (sighs) Yes. Um, My biggest piece of advice for anybody that's just starting out is to enjoy the process. Because for me, the the thrill of learning this new process is something to savor and enjoy. I did not do that when I was learning to make jewelry because I was so excited. I just wanted to see end results. I didn't savor the process. And when I came to learning to make knives, I told myself right from day one, enjoy this because this beginning part is so exciting and so fun. Savor it. And the joy that comes from doing that is, to me, it's just one of life's really great things. So that's my first piece of advice. (laughs) I mean, my my second is to to take your time and as as um, as hard of it as it is, finish each process before you move on to the next one. And that's kind of part of savoring, but it's more you will be happier with your end product if you do that. One of the biggest problems for people starting out in anything is they want to rush through and see the end product, and I completely understand that. But when you see the scratches and the finish that isn't that good and all of that sort of stuff, it will be... uh, It can be a disappointment when you know that you could have done it better. And... That I almost think that sounds kind of harsh for somebody just starting out, but I think that it's important. The finishing is very often what sets you apart from other people, and if you can learn to finish well, your end product will be better.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: And the third piece of advice. <laughs> <I>
3: think... <laughs> All right, keep it coming.
4: If you are doing this, that you think you're going to do this as a business, then you have to understand that learning how to market yourself is as important as any aspect of learning how to make a knife. It's not to be viewed as some horrible thing that you have to do. It's to be viewed as another art form. It's another technique. And it's essential. You can be the best maker in the whole world, but if nobody knows about you, that won't get you very far. <laughs> I, those are the things that I think are the most important. Yeah. And to not limit yourself, not think that you're going to have a problem being a female if you're a female coming into this, I didn't find it to be a problem at all. I've never thought of myself as a female knife maker. I've thought of myself as a knife maker. I've never wanted to be the best female knife maker. I've wanted to be the best knife maker. You know? <laughs> and I think that our attitude about this has a great deal to do with how we're perceived and accepted.
3: But then I do feel like, I don't know, in my life, definitely seeing women do things has, you know, they've been role models. Like when I went to learn how to forge, I went to do a course up in Scotland that was and the teacher was a woman and that made a huge difference to how I felt there because I felt like all, so everyone else on the course was a young guy
4: and uh-huh. all
3: of them had to look up to her every day and I feel like that made a big difference to how they treated me being on the course.
4: Sure, I imagine it did.
3: Yeah, because I remember one of them came up to me at, at the beginning and he was like, you know, only two women have ever won Forged in Fire. And I was like, well, there's only been about four women on and Fire, so they're doing pretty good. you <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> like how many guys have lost, you know what I mean? But still, oh, even yeah. just to say that, you know, some 17-year-old coming up to me, I was like, for fuck's sake, you know? But at least then oh. when we got into the course, like, yeah, every day they had to look up to a woman to teach them. Mm-hmm. And I did feel like that was cool, you know? And if it was a man, I think it would have been a bit different because maybe they would have... Seen a role model in that person in a different way you know
4: yeah yeah i think that's very interesting and then you know you have the whole age thing going on there (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is which is a whole different dynamic you know but that yeah that's cool that that you had a female instructor like that that's wonderful
3: yeah it was great yeah and totally just chance you know um it's definitely
4: yeah. Right. Right. No, I. 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 I think it's. Uh, you know, I'm thrilled to see other women doing well in this in this field. Um, and like I said, there's there's so many of them yeah.
3: now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Almost thirty now, Delena. <laughs> in the world.
4: Yeah. yeah. but way more than when i when i started it's and that's so interesting to me it's just you know if i'm interested in something something that i want to do that that it's the interest in the thing that's that's what drives me
3: this is the end this is the end of the one-time only international women's day takeover of knife talk podcast i am so grateful to you guys for listening i'm so grateful to the knife talk guys for letting this happen make sure you go and check out everyone's work you were listening to vanessa martin Elion leblanc grace horn andrea delion and Delena. i've been holly loftus of loftus knives and if you have any questions from the show any questions about knife making the guys over at Knife Talk take in listener questions and answer them every week. So send them a DM over to Knife Talk Podcast on Instagram. And if your question is good, then they might answer it. Happy International Women's Day, everybody. Don't forget to buy a woman a power hammer. Bye.
0: This show is brought to you by The Makery,
1: the podcast network for makers. <laughs>
5: Just keep keep going and keep your fingers off the grinder.